This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. Co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stock Strong Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a CEO advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really timely, important show talking about inflation, the Fed, the economy. We're going to be going deep into commodities with a, a strategist on commodities, thinking about what's been happening in oil and other markets, a key driver of the inflation we've been having, Professor. We had uh, you last week saying, you know, slow and deliberate pace. They should do 100. Uh, it seems like they were listening to you when they went uh, 75 this week. Yeah, and um, uh, pretty much baked into the market. I think he had to take control of the narrative. But, uh, Jeremy, let me tell you what I think is more important, just as important, obviously, is what I am seeing now. What really caught my eye on Wednesday was the retail sales debt. It was terrible. Um, and, in fact, all the economic data that's coming in is terrible. In fact, it is so bad that it is almost certain now that the first half of this year um, we're going to have negative GDP growth. Now, we may have a little bit of a positive growth second quarter, but it looks like min- minus two in the first quarter and uh, maybe some uh, half a percent in the second. We'll have to see this uh, on that. But that's, I mean, uh, you know, to, you know, uh, a rule of thumb is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. But we've had uh, an average of two quarters of negative GDP. I, I think we are in a mild recession. I right now, and I think I think activity is falling off dramatically. Um, the anticipation of you know vigorous increases and let me tell you more more than just the data that's coming through we're beginning to see it in the markets um i mean oil is you're going to talk about oil today i mean wti is down you know almost five and a half percent today um uh uh you 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 take a look at uh wholesale gas prices uh, which are going to go below five dollars uh well wholesale price is below five dollars at three seventy two, but it's down to almost six percent. And I think the retail price is now going to go back down below five. Um, uh, natural gas prices are going down. Now, part of that is because of the uh, export refinery. Uh, the uh, Bloomberg uh, Commodity Index is down seven percent from its high. Um, uh, it, looking at the stock market now, we you know had talked about the fact that uh, value was outpacing growth steadily in this market as interest rates rose. That has not been true over the last 10 days, actually. And the reason is simple, because of recession fears. In other words, recession fears have skyrocketed, in in my opinion, and that's putting pressure on, well, the so-called value stocks that um, are, are more tied to the uh, business cycle. I mean, you see that today, right now, you know, with the, basically the Dow is down a half a percent, as we talk, NASDAQ is up three quarters of a percent. Um, but uh, we're we're beginning we're beginning to see uh, an, another interesting statistic. You know, we talk about the money supply, and we talk about the fact that the actual M two money supply being most important is only out on the fourth Tuesday of the month. However, I've been checking on commercial bank deposits, which is a big part of that money supply, and that does come out weekly. And it has uh, the the weekly data that we have since the uh, last. Uh, money supply report again shows that money supply growth has basically been flat uh, over the last three months. All those are indicating to me that the slowdown is here. Now, what does this mean? This may mean that um, come July, um, we may not get a 75 and we may not even get a 50. Uh, if uh, if, 
if it is slowing down as fast as it appears now. Now, that's no slam dunk. We could get a, you know, obviously revival. But uh, the data is really falling off. And, um, you know, my opinion is we, we saw the 10-year tips. It's now 66 basis points. And we saw it go to 80 or 90. I mean, that's a huge increase. We talked about that last week. Yeah. Two percentage point increase basically in the tips since the beginning late last year. I mean, um, um, you know, most of the in- decline in the stock market is not earnings. It's, it's the increase in the discount rate. I think the discount rate, I think the 10-year rate is now well above its long term um, and, and providing uh, contractionary forces onto the economy. I know short-term tips are still negative, um, but uh, longer-term tips have turned positive. And um, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I said three weeks ago when I saw the money supply decline, that the Fed just has to watch out. And I'm just saying they have to watch out. They have to, it doesn't mean they have to stop, they should stop in their path of tightening. Don't forget, all these rates are are contingent on the Fed going through with the plan. I mean, the, the, the um, December 22 Fed funds is 340, and that's exactly what the new dot plot is, 340. Um, on uh, December Fed funds. So that's building in increases. Um, so they can't just say we're going to stop. Uh, that would be way too much of a move in the other direction. I'm just saying that at this particular point, um, I'm not seeing the need for dramatic extra tightening. I, I call for 100 to get the narrative. The narrative was could have been gotten with 75, got to 100. And by the way, I haven't mentioned the housing market, which is the first time ever there are reports of um, price declines, particularly at the high end. Clearly, uh, the Bitcoin meltdown, the crypto meltdown um, is is uh, one of the factors. I mean, we've wiped out over a trillion dollars off of crypto uh, in the last six months, in addition to the stock meltdown. But uh, we're seeing it now in the housing already. The 30-year mortgage has uh, been above 5.5%. Uh, um, we're, I, I think the crest of the housing market is there. So I'm just saying this has turned very quickly, um, and um, uh, we, uh, we have to keep our eyes on, on this, uh, on this yeah. factor. Let me say before one more question is that um, uh, we're getting some official reports. I think there was one that I don't know if it was the Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan talked about the fact that the undercounting of housing uh, is going to cause inflation in the official statistics for months and months and months to come. It's a topic that we've talked about for over one year. It seems like Wall Street suddenly has discovered this. The Fed cannot overreact to the lags that we're gonna that's gonna continue to put a push up statistical CPI data in the coming months. Well, it sounds like uh, on, on two points, you you feel like the the the, the longer term bond yields are getting to quote unquote better to them fair value on the real rates on on the short term. To get three forty on Fed funds, you've got four more meetings: July, September, November, December. When you think to the path from here to it, it's basically doubling of the rates. Is it? I guess it's three fifties and a twenty five is what they're they're forecasting in the rates essentially. Yeah, the December is three three forty six right now on on, on Fed funds. Um, uh, by, by the way, we know that that's a, because of uh, the, the, the negative beta of those things. Uh, that actually the mean expectation is probably closer to 360 or 365. That's aggressive tightening. Um, the Fed just has to realize that just the expectation of this tightening has has pulled the economy back. And we're going to see these higher interest rates. People can get out of deposits at banks. So they're, they're not raising. And, of course, they'll go into Treasury bills, and the money's got to go somewhere. It doesn't just disappear. Uh, but people are not taking out loans. Um, I mean, the extent that this cuts the loan demand, causes people to pay back floating rate loans, which are suddenly going up for the first time, either based on LIBOR or SOFR. Um, uh, all this could continue to pressure the money supply into a flattening mode. Uh, we don't... Um, the, 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 the impact has come sooner than I thought. 
um, and it's um, we have to keep our eyes on this. But it might surprise us in July if this continue if this continued weakness comes. The Fed might, in in fact, be confronted with a 25 to 50, not a 50 to 75 basis point choice on the Fed funds rate. Well, Professor, always great to get your take. Uh, it's a very interesting week from the Fed and the markets. We'll uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Yeah, talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn the conversation over to Ed Morris from City. Uh, he's one of their commodity strategists. Uh, key of uh, the topics today: global head of commodities uh, strategy for City Research. Ed, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. You know, it's been a, a year of in, inflationary concerns, and commodities have been a big part of that. I guess from your top-down look, uh, any broad comments you want to make before we drill into some specific uh, points? Um, yeah, so broadly speaking, there have been three different waves of, of commodity price increases that we've had with the uh, unfolding of the pandemic. We had a, a, a price crash in 2020 because... Uh, global economic activity fell pretty completely for a very brief period of time. And then we had a recovery. So starting in the third quarter of 2020, the recovery from a deep cut in demand for anything other than food that had a commodity content, that content whether it was metals for property like microwave ovens and refrigerators or um, whether it was for industrial activity like steel making or aluminum manufacture uh, or whether it was for driving and shipping and flying, uh, we had what we normally have with a recovery from a recession, namely commodities outperforming equities, bonds, and rates. Uh, and that continued through the last two quarters of 2020 and the first, uh, all of 2021, all four quarters of 2021, people started talking about this being a new super cycle. I think that was a mistaken part of their analysis and that they failed to think about what happens after a recession. They failed to look at the great financial crisis in 2008, 9, 10, uh, when you have this incredible spurt in commodity demand and commodity prices uh, as people start driving again, as people start buying again. Um, and then it kind of uh, tapers out. But we had a new event in 2021 that had nothing at all to do with the recovery, nothing at all to do with the uh, uh, so-called energy or commodity uh, super cycle being reborn. It had to do with what I would call the first crisis of the energy transition. The world really ran out of natural gas. And they ran out of natural gas because of climate change. We had droughts in Brazil, followed by droughts in North America, including Canada and the United States. We had them in China. We had them across Russia. And we had them across Europe. So we ran out of hydropower in places that failed to think about the need for having a regulated electricity market. And they failed to provide the reliability of the resilience, the redundancy that's needed for switching to other things when the rain doesn't come. And then in Europe, the wind stopped blowing. So it was both hydro and wind power that were lost. And the only thing available that you could move on an international market quickly was natural gas. And the price skyrocketed. And it had um, you know, nothing to do with the recovery from the pandemic. It had purely to do with... Uh, the lack of regulatory concern about enough nuclear power, enough coal-fired power, enough natural gas-fired power to deal with the loss of renewables. Uh, and that didn't end before the Russia-Ukraine conflict started, starting a new wave of uh, supply chain issues related to commodities because Russia is the number one supplier of natural gas in the world, the number one supplier of crude oil and petroleum products in the world, the number one supplier of nickel, of copper, of the me mechanisms for iron ore, of all of the ingredients for fertilizers. Uh, it's the largest exporter of wheat. Um, you go down the list and it goes to things that are obscure, like titanium needed to build aircraft, whether by Boeing or by uh, Airbus and even to neon gas, of all things, that nobody really thinks about, but is required for making computer chips. So we had 
a new set of dislocational problems associated with Russia-Ukraine, which um, have led to shortages all over the place and relocation, redistribution uh, of um, where supply is coming from and where it's going as Russia has found itself losing its market in the United States and Canada in the UK and across its biggest market of all, uh, the European Union. So these dislocations have come right after the, as I said, first crisis of the energy transition, which itself succeeded the incredible recovery of demand for commodities. And as a result of that, commodity over, uh, outperformance has, has gone through the first quarter of this year and even as commodities are coming off, they're not coming off to the degree that equities and bonds are coming off, and they still look better as an investment uh, than other alternatives. So, you know, that's my overview. Yeah. For you know, you start looking at where, what's happening now. No, it's a lot going on in, that we could drill into. Maybe you know, in, in terms of the the one of of note on on today's moves as well as sort of bigger moves this year. Uh, Oil has been been a key uh, sort of in the a lot of the commodity indexes in very big weights, um, and I've seen. I think that's what motivated me to reach out was I saw one of your calls for seventy dollar oil, if I'm not mistaken, in a few weeks ago. Um, when when you think about where we've gone on oil so far, what's your thesis that oil is is too high uh, and and what's going to pressure it back down? So uh, oil is too high largely because of the dislocations happening on the planet. We have um, a boycott of uh, Russian supplies of oil and natural gas, uh, and Russia is the largest supplier of them. Uh, and we're having a bidding up issue that's taking place because when um, the European buyer of Russian oil or gas uh, decides that it's not going to do that any longer, it has to find an alternative, and it bids up the price of the alternatives, which are not immediately available um, to completely replace the lost Russian supply. So we have, um, let's take, you know, West African crude oil, Nigerian crude oil. It normally trades at a premium to Brent, which is one of the world benchmarks for oil. And it, it is at a premium because it's better oil. It's lighter. It's more easily transformed into uh, transport fuels, light products. Um, so it's more valuable. Normally that value of, say, Nigerian crude is maybe two or three dollars on a premium against Brent, but the premium is now between six and thirteen dollars a barrel, depending on you know which kind of Nigerian crude you're looking for. There's not enough West African crude to satisfy uh, an alternative demand from uh, Russian resources, and Russian resources, meanwhile. Uh, not being bought by the largest buyer of them, namely companies in the European Union, have to seek out uh, a, a market wherever they can sell it. An intriguing topic that you may want to talk about, by the way, is that if you look at the three giant uh, oil-producing countries in the world, Russia, uh, which we tend to call the bear, uh, Saudi Arabia, which we tend to call the camel, and the United States, which we tend to call the eagle, Russia has, for the last... 60-some years, been the only one of these main suppliers that has consistently looked to free markets and to price oil to sell. And right now, they're pricing oil to sell at a 40% discount to euros rather than a 2% discount to euros. So it's the mirror image of the bidding up by European buyers of Atlantic Basin crude. Uh, it's not going to be stranded because the Russians going to sell it somewhere. Uh, they've sold it, uh, as an example, to India, uh, where uh, Indian refiners are buying now this month a million barrels a day. Plus, from uh, Russia uh, a year ago, they were buying 80,000 barrels a day from Russia. So we're having this enormous set of dislocations across the globe that uh, is leading Europe to buy from, among other places, the United States. And we've seen in the United States our exports absolutely skyrocketing uh, with the unfolding of the Russia-Ukraine crisis and the boycotting of Russian oil product and Russian crude supply. Uh, so we've had weeks in which, rather than the U.S. on a gross basis exporting 
eight plus million barrels a day. We've been exporting ten and a half, ten point six million barrels a day. The U.S. has ironically become the largest supplier of oil in the international markets as a result of what's happening globally, and this has been pulling down our inventory uh, to very low levels, which is one reason the prices are so high. And meanwhile, China, where their economic activity came to a standstill with the uh, COVID shutdowns this winter and spring, has been hoarding oil. They're buying and storing oil almost in measure to which the U.S. is drawing down inventory. So we have a, a really topsy-turvy world that will eventually get rebalanced. And when it gets rebalanced, I think we'll discover, I feel strongly we'll discover that supply is outweighing demand. The world as a whole, including the U.S., will see inventories growing and we'll see the pressure on the price so that, uh, you know, the current uh, WTI, as your previous speaker indicated, down uh, almost $7 today, 6%, and Brent down close to 5%, uh, down $5.5 a barrel. Uh, we think, you know, we're having in this quarter average prices that will be just a tad lower than where current prices are, remembering that we started Q2 at a lower level. But we think prices will go down, uh, averaging around where they are now, 110 more or less for for uh, WTI and 113 or so for Brent. But as we see the uh, increase in production, and already this week U.S. production is up another 100,000 barrels a day, we think that keeps growing, um, along with Canadian and Brazilian and other production. So third quarter, which is usually much stronger uh, in the market than the second quarter, we think the likelihood is that we'll see oil under 100 uh, and maybe at the $95 level for WTI, a good, you know, $15 a barrel on average lower than where prices uh, uh, currently at. And we think that pressure will continue to the low 80s by the end of the year. And then uh, in the 70 dollars a barrel range for most of 2023. Very interesting. We're talking with Ed Morris, who's a global head of commodity strategies for City research uh, with his sort of more pessimistic oil take here. Um, Ed, when you think about the supply uh, side and, and sort of OPEC's capacity to produce, you know, a, a number of people have been, been pointing charts that show they've failed to meet some of their targets. Do you have a sense on, is there something that would convince you that they're they're not going to be able to deliver the supply or or is, is any other commentary of what's happening in the OPEC uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be impolite on this and say that the analysts who focus on that are simply irresponsible as analysts. And I say that because everybody knows that when OPEC Plus made a political decision to raise production, that political decision had to take into account all 23 members of the OPEC Plus group. It had to take into account, without insulting them, what their... Uh, prior production levels were, recognizing that they couldn't produce to their prior production levels um, because those prior production levels have gone down. But there are countries within the group. Russia was one of them and still may be one of them. Certainly Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and the UAE and Kuwait to a lesser degree are among them that have spare capacity. So when OPEC decided to uh, add nominally 433,000 barrels a day to the market every month. They knew they were never going to do that. Any analyst who looked at it knew they were never going to do it. But the increment was going to be more like 250, 260,000 barrels a day. And it was going to come from Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, UAE, and Kuwait. Uh, so, you know, that's the number that one ought to look at. And they have been producing. Uh, incrementally at about that level, which will mean by the time their agreement runs out, which is uh, by the time we get to September, that set of countries will have added over 2 million barrels a day to the market from January uh, through August. Russia may be a little iffy on it, uh, and there too, you've got to look at it responsibly, uh, responsibly because you've got to look at Russian exports to the outside world 
And those exports have not gone down. They've gone up as refining has gone down for a whole bunch of complicated reasons. Uh, and uh, I would note that uh, the Institute on International Finance in Washington, which was created by banks to look at uh, uh, emerging market countries and to pool information about them, uh, which banks couldn't do because it would violate uh, antitrust laws, but they needed somebody to collect the information. The IIF uh, is looking at Russian GDP growth tumbling by 15 to 16% this year, um, and that means lower demand for everything, including oil. Um, it means lower refinery throughput uh, because Russia is handicapped in exporting some of their refined products, but it doesn't necessarily mean lower exports, and exports have actually gone up a tad from where they had been as Russia has found new markets, including discounting oil to China, to India, and to a whole bunch of other countries, making up for its lost markets elsewhere. So, no, I think that uh, the answer to your question, straightforward, is that the, um, that the issue of what OPEC will be producing after September is a lively one. People who point to lower spare production capacity are right, and that means that if we have massive disruptions to supply, whether from Russia or uh, Iraq or Libya or Nigeria, there might not be enough oil to deal with that. But if we look at our expected growth of non-OPEC production, excluding Russia, uh, on top of that 2.5 million barrels a day of OPEC solid production growth from the countries I mentioned, we think it's 2.5 million barrels a day of non-OPEC production from uh, most of it coming from North America, by the way, uh, and South America to a significant extent. Uh, we have, uh, on the liquid side, a projection of a million three hundred thousand incrementally coming out of the United States this year versus last year, 300 a day out of Canada. That brings us to 1.6. Uh, 200 a day out of Brazil. That brings us to 1.8 million a day, 200 out of Guyana, Suriname combined. That brings us to 2 million a day. Uh, and then add, um, uh, add what's happening in Colombia and Argentina. We're up to 2.1 million a day from the Western Hemisphere, not counting uh, Mexico up 100 a day, not counting Venezuela, a member of OPEC, uh, already up around 300,000 barrels a day year on year. So, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, a solid uh, close to 5 million barrels a day, if not higher, of new supply. And everybody is reducing their estimation of demand growth. Ours is at a 2.2 million barrel a day number. Um, the EIA and the IEA are below our number on demand. Only OPEC has been, uh, uh, for whatever reason, of the view that demand is going to be spectacularly high this year. I don't know where they get their number from when we see all these headwinds to economic growth that your previous speaker talked about. Uh, yeah. if, I think some of the, the other people who tend to be more bullish would say lack of investment um, has 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 constrained the longer-term cycle. And Do you any see... Any any truth to that, or the, the longer term the longer term supply issues, uh, and how much capital has been put invested? In, is it is it uh, enough new supply you think is going to be met over the foreseeable few years? Yeah, so I, I think the main mistake analytically that some people make when they say that there's been underinvestment, um, and by the way, among the people who say that are people in OPEC and in the International Energy Agency. I think. Uh, the main problem with their analysis is that they don't look at the efficiency of capital. They don't look at how much bang you get from the buck. Uh, I would note that um, in the beginning of the last decade, the average finding and development costs in the world were about $30 a barrel. Uh, I would say the rule of thumb on that is that the forward curve, the deferred price of oil, should be around uh, three times the level of average finding and development costs. And indeed, um, if you look at the period starting in July 2009, going through the early months of 2014, 
before uh, Crimean events occurred uh, and other things happened, we had average F&D costs at around $30 a barrel. That is defined in developed oil. And Brent average prices deferred were 90 plus or minus two for every single month from July 2009 to February 2014. And then in 2014, we saw the incredible revolution of technology when it comes to conventional oil, when it comes to shale, when it comes to oil sands, whether in Canada or Venezuela, and when it comes to deep water, all of seeing, all of them seeing an incredible collapse in the cost of finding and developing oil. Uh, for the year 2019, it went to $11 a barrel, down from 30 uh, $11 a barrel, incidentally, would be consistent with a $33 environment. Uh, why you don't have that or wouldn't likely have it, although we did actually have it, ironically, in 2020 uh, when OPEC overproduced um, and uh, it had a, a battle for market share uh, and then ended it uh, after they forced an incredible build of inventory on the rest of the world. Uh, and then they started, you know, cutting back production by over 10 million barrels a day and, uh, uh, you know, overdid it to some degree by drawing down inventories. But we're now having around $480 billion of uh, investment capital in the upstream side across the world of publicly traded companies this year. That compared to $850 billion in 2014. So the number is down, but the bang for the buck is up. And as we look at projects and as we look at prices, uh, I'd like to make kind of two comments. One is the U.S. Is, was critical to uh, the oversupply of oil in the market, and the U.S. was the most critical factor in the tightness of the market. U.S. production went from five or six million barrels a day before the shale revolution to 13 million barrels a day as the pandemic set in. And then drilling stopped, and the short cycle crude. Uh, and yes, we have the rhetoric of new discipline in U.S. companies, but that's not what is at stake. What's at stake is we stopped drilling, and our production came to a low of 10.2 million a day, almost 3 million barrels a day lower than um, it had been. And already, you know, if there were no pandemic, if there were not, not that recession, if there were not this collapse in drilling, the U.S., with a very conservative look at it, would today be producing 14.7 million barrels a day. But we're producing 12 million a day as of this week, 2.7 million a day under where we otherwise would be. And the problem is not a lack of investment, a, pro a problem that the world is confronting with short-cycle oil in the U.S. collapsing, and it's now on the rebound. And as I said earlier, it's going to be uh, getting back to uh, that 13 million barrel a day level by the first quarter of next year and then continue to grow by another million a day next year. Maybe not as much as in the go-go years where we had U.S. production growth of 1.8 million a day on average for the three years before the pandemic. But, you know, 1.3 million a day is pretty, pretty remarkable this year. Um, and a million a day is going to be pretty remarkable next year. So, um, you know, when you look at not just the U.S., but Canada and Brazil uh, and the spurt that's happening in Argentina um, and Kazakhstan and Norway and other places, um, and you look at the supply-demand requirements of 2023, 2024, 2025, um, I think we see inventory growth during those years, and it's going to be up to OPEC to decide, you know, what they're going to do. Are they going to, uh, as the UAE now appears to be doing, saying, hey, we don't want to be the last guy standing on the planet producing oil as the world gets off of oil, and we've got a lot of oil resources. They had more discoveries. They had a target of 5 million barrels a day to be reached by 2030 against their current production of 3.3 million a day. They have more discoveries. They're now targeting 6 million a day, and they're trying to accelerate that to 2027 rather than 2030. And uh, the Saudis have started, you know, drilling again. 
um, and they've already brought in new rigs on the offshore since the year began, uh, indicating that uh, it appears they're going to be accelerating their in- incremental one million barrels a day of planned production to an earlier date and time, maybe 2024-25. And we hadn't even counted that as part of the world. So I think it'll be up to them, again, to decide whether they want to be the world's kind of so-called central banker of oil, pulling out liquidity to put a floor under prices, or whether they want to go all out and uh, have a lower price as they diversify their economies. It'll be interesting to see. Well, Ed, I wish we had the full uh, full hour with you, but uh, you know, there's, this has been a great, interesting conversation. Uh, I think there's a lot going on in the commodity markets. I'd love to touch on a bunch more with you, but we're so we're going to have to get you back. Uh, but this has been been a very interesting discussion. I uh, would love to to keep in touch. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Ed. We've been talking with Ed Morse, uh, Global Head of Commodity Strategy at City Research. Uh, sort of interesting countertake to a lot of the bullish oil forecast you're hearing. We'll be coming back with John Sylvia, economist to talk about the Fed, the macro. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Listen to Behind the Markets. I'd like to welcome John Sylvia to the show. John is president of Dynamic Economic Strategy. Uh, he's been uh, formerly the chief economist at Wells Fargo Securities. John, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, had a lot of economic news this week. We got the Fed. We've got some disappointing retail sales. I'd like to get your take on where we stand, what you saw from the Fed, and what's your outlook for the economy here? Well, I think the outlook from the Fed's point of view is that we, we must realize that Chairman Powell set up a benchmark, which basically said, is if I don't see a, a real significant decline in inflation and inflation expectations before the next meeting, uh, we're going to have another 75 basis points. And the practical problem here, Jeremy, is you've only got six weeks between the June and July meeting, and it's very unlikely you will see a significant change in inflation expectations and inflation. So my bet is the Fed goes ahead with the 75 basis points in July. I think also we all know that the Fed is now talking about reducing their balance sheet. So there's going to definitely be upward pressure on the mortgage market, uh, certainly upward pressure on the benchmark treasury rates of two, five, and 10 years. So in general, uh, interest rates will be going up. Um, you know, I, I certainly think your point on retail sales is important. Uh, what we have to understand in terms of the American consumer is one of, of course, it's the most significant portion of the U.S. economy in terms of driving growth. But what we've seen in the last week, and I think one thing that really shook the Fed on last Friday, um, was that consumer comp, consumer sentiment, as measured by the University of Michigan, fell to an all-time low. And, and that's incredible, given that the numbers go, go all the way back to 1950. So the consumer sentiment's not good. We also know that real disposable income for the American consumer has been down over the last year. And we also note that there have been significant increases in the consumer credit numbers uh, in terms of consumers using, you know, basically the credit card uh, to make up for the decline in income. So, when you talk about your question, yes, we see the Fed raising interest rates 75 basis points in July, and perhaps another 50 basis points come September. And we do see a definite slowdown in the economy, particularly with respect to the consumer sector. When, when you think so, the the we had Professor Siegel kicking off the show, and and he'd been saying he thinks we could avoid a recession this year. He said maybe we may be in a mild recession after he saw that data. Do do you have a as as you think about the your Fed path with the next seventy five potentially coming, and and some of these fears of recession this week happening? Like, do you, is your is your what's your call for the recession? Yeah, I, I think what we have to depend upon here and the professor could be entirely correct, is how aggressively the Fed does pursue their interest rate target by raising interest rates. I I think most listeners can appreciate that 
there's a lot of discussion about, you know, is Chairman Powell now going to become Paul Volcker? And we all know Paul Volcker was very aggressive. And it, and so it depends upon the model of policy and the policy response the Fed wants to pursue. If they really want to get inflation down, the first challenge I think everybody has learned over the last six months is inflation is not transitory. It's very persistent. To fight in a persistent inflation, they're going to have for, to increase interest rates pretty significantly. That'll generate the kind of recession um, that, again, some people are talking about. Uh, if the Fed were to be less aggressive raising interest rates, um, <clears throat> then we could see definitely a slowdown in the economy, but perhaps no recession. So I, I think what we need to see is 75 basis points in July. And what is the Fed's rhetoric with respect to, for example, <coughs> excuse me, the slowdown in the housing market, which is evident, and also the retail sales number you refer to. How does the Fed incorporate that slowdown data in terms of its incentives to raise interest rates? So it's not an obvious path that we're in here. And I think what the professor is simply saying is that it could go either way, depending on how the Fed, how aggressive the Fed wants to pursue those interest rates. So I think for our listeners, the benchmarks are, okay, what is the rhetoric in the next month or two with respect to the Fed and the economy and housing? And what do they say about how many, how much they're going to raise interest rates in September? And the last point I would make, Jeremy, is that right now, people for the summer are getting out. And it's a big relief. There's no mass on the airplanes. There's no mass in the airports. There's no mandatory mask. So people are taking their families. They're going with their friends. They're getting out. They're going to spend money in the summer. But come September and October, when the summer vacations are all over, then we're going to see really uh, what is the story with respect to a recession in the U.S. economy. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I think one of the first times, uh, well, certainly not the first time, but we, we, we spent some time this summer in Maine. We'll, are you going back to Maine for the summer uh, program here? Uh, for, for me, no. Uh, this summer, um, we're going to do uh, a couple of family vacations in different places, but I am going out to uh, Jackson, Wyoming for an economic conference uh, in a couple of weeks, and that'll be uh, my uh, fishing slash uh, horseback riding slash let's talk about economics for four yeah. or five hours at a time conference. Yeah, the Global Interdependence Center is something that we've uh, both become uh, friendly in. In terms of the um, – when, when you think about the global dynamics um, – you know, you certainly one of the big there, there's all the stuff happening besides the, the Fed. You had the Bank of Japan come on the other side, say, we're going to keep buying all the bonds. We're not uh, following this path higher in rates. Any commentary of what you see globally is is the Bank of Japan the most interesting central bank? Today? You see any other uh, things happening in the world that that's also interesting to note? Yeah, I think the global demand dynamics are really key here, Jeremy, because uh, I think we all know that in the first quarter when GDP gross domestic product was reported, it was a negative number and it was a negative number because primarily because of the trade. And the problem we're having is the economic weakness that we see in Japan and in the Euro community and in the UK and the shutdowns in China all combined to create this significant trade deficit which led to negative GDP number. And so what we're going to have to look at going forward is what evidence do we see that there is some economic recovery so that our exports can improve relative to our imports. Now, with respect to the Bank of Japan, what's intriguing, um, along with the euro and the British pound, is that the dollar has increased in value relative to each of those currencies and increased significantly over the last three or four months. That's more, much more difficult on trade, but it makes vacations in Europe or Japan or in the UK cheaper for Americans. So the fact that European banks and Japanese central banks are not increasing interest rates at the rate that the Fed is, 
means that the dollar has gained strength. But unfortunately, that's a little bit more negative for our trade position. Again, leaning us a little bit more to a larger trade deficit, which means a more negative GDP number. It is a very, very tricky period uh, in terms of how this economy and the Fed uh, will proceed. I'm talking with John Sylvia, president of Dynamic Economic Strategy. Uh, John, I mean, it has everybody came in. There's so many people who were bearish the dollar to start the year, and and I think it's, it's <laughs> largely the the Fed. Um, but the yen at 135, I mean, that is uh, the the weakest level in, in quite some time. I mean, how do you think about the future path of the dollar? Is it is it uh, can it still continue strengthening from here? Yeah, I, I, I certainly sympathize with your comment. It was a real surprise. I mean, we, I can go back and look at articles and different newspapers talking about the dollar being a weak currency, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't turn out that way at all. The dollar strength reflects two different things. The increase in interest rates, perhaps a little bit of a slowdown expected in inflation so that real interest rates will start to go positive. And then the relative strength of the U.S. economy versus abroad. And right now, what I see is that those fundamentals remain in place for continued appreciation of the dollar. Now, the one wild card here, Jeremy, is what is China doing? Um, you know, any kind of consistent shutdown in their economy means the dollar is going to strengthen relative to the renminbi. Um, and that's going to, again, impact trade. So I would say my bet would be the dollar would probably continue to appreciate in value, probably another 3 to 5% through the end of the year. Interesting. You don't get a lot of people uh, calling for that. Everybody t- likes to bet on the, d- the death of the dollar. It seems to be more the consensus <laughs> calls. Um, and and, and you, as you think about China, you mentioned China, what, what's going on there. They, they seem to be sticking to the COVID zero policies any view on on how some of China actually opens ever? Uh, you know, what, what what that's going to mean for the global economy? Yeah, I I think that China will eventually open. Uh, certainly, the COVID zero policy is really devastating with respect to shipping, transportation, and essentially feeding back into production, so that the Chinese economy again much weaker than people had expected. Hence. Once again, uh, the renminbi depreciating relative to the dollar. Uh, you know, it, it's a very challenging period, Jeremy, because we don't have a model for this. Um, as you know, we all live in a world where we can try to put different factors together and figure out, okay, what's happening? But in China with the shutdowns, this is a brand new thing. This is not something we have any empirical evidence of. We know it's a lot of politics rather than economics. And if they decide to do something, there's not an economic rationale for doing this. It's just what the Communist Party wants to do in China. And it's a, again, it creates a lot of uncertainty. For my bet, with respect to how they pursue this policy, it means that Chinese economic growth will be weaker uh, than many people had expected. The renminbi will be stronger. The renminbi, I'm sorry, the renminbi will be weaker relative to the dollar, um, and it hurts global trade. But one thing, Jeremy, I think you've also seen is a lot of U.S. firms have figured out we got to do something other than depending upon Chinese imports. And so there's a lot of onshoring or the plans for onshoring into the United States uh, relative to what you would have seen three or six months ago. Yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely starting to get more questions about what are the long-term implications of that mm-hmm. reshoring. Absolutely process is is that something you think that leads to structurally higher inflation like one of the, the you talked about globalization driving inflationary pressures down over time is this one of the things that might give you a, a higher inflationary impulse over the, the medium term there very much agreed in the medium term uh, when you're bringing that production back um, you don't have the same pricing on raw materials and labor it's going to cost you more uh, to produce anything at least over the next three months to a year. Uh, over time, uh, the bet is that a more reliable and experienced labor force and supply chain process will generate more modest gains in inflation and a more reliable supply chain. That's the bet. 
and we'll see how it plays out. Maybe I could, you know, using your your economist and forecasting hat, I, I maybe I could ask you for a few outlooks twelve months from now when we think about where we. You mentioned uh, the dollar could be going higher. When we think about the ten year, which has moved sharply this year, based on all of your views of what's happening, how do you see the ten year? Uh, at th- you know, it's been, it, we got to three fifty. Do you see it uh, considerably higher? Where it is lower? What's your what's your sense? Yeah, I don't see it considerably higher, Jeremy, because I think a lot of what the market has done uh, in terms of the two-year and 10-year is overpriced how much or how aggressive the Fed could really be on in interest rates. I think it's going to be a very tough slog for the Fed to pursue a Volcker-type program. And so my bet is, okay, uh, 75 uh, you may be 50, but the rhetoric tones down significantly. Um, I agree with the professor. I think the Fed will probably draw back from pursuing an aggressive interest rate policy. So interest rates probably will moderate. Um, growth will probably still remain very disappointing, and the unemployment rate uh, will rise. Uh, it was interesting to hear Chairman Powell talk about the possibility that the unemployment rate is going to rise, and that was in the Fed's economic projections, which was very interesting. Uh, That's a change in tone from the Fed, um, that you would get a higher interest rates uh, going forward. So I would say the stronger dollar, probably some moderation in interest rates, uh, 10-year and two-year benchmark over the next uh, three to six months at least. Um, I I certainly think that the the inflation numbers will be persistent, uh, but come down very slowly. And again, that is an interesting story with the Fed, uh, that uh, their projections for the inflation number, uh, core PCE deflator, for the next two or three years is still above their target. Yeah. So th- they're still talking about allowing or at least foreseeing inflation numbers above their target going forward. Um, so so I, I think that's, that's pretty key. And then finally, you know, the uh, challenge of having slower economic growth and higher interest rates still remains a challenge for the equity markets. There's no doubt about that. That's, that, that's still a challenge until there's some repricing in terms of what is sustainable growth in the United States, probably something like two, two and a half percent. What's the sustainable inflation yep. number? Uh, again, and, and where are interest rates? That combination tells me that, you know, the big decline and the equity market's probably done yep. uh, because that's the shock factor. Thank you. It's been a great uh, discussion. You've listened to Behind the Markets and Sirius 132. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.